Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Brussels is buzzing again. The streets of the EU quarter are packed with cars. It's unusually hot, which has bubble dwellers filling the pavements and outdoor cafes, heading back to meetings and, of course, to parties. It's rentrée in Brussels. That means back to school. And welcome back to EU Confidential. I'm Suzanne Lynch, Politico's chief Brussels correspondent. And this week, we're bringing you up to speed on what we can expect this autumn. That's coming up in just a moment with our Politico team here in Brussels. Later, you'll hear from Kosovo President Viosa Osmani. We spoke at the European Forum Altbach in Austria last week. She addresses her country's desire to join the EU and the challenges given Kosovo's difficult relationship with neighbouring Serbia. The um, candidate status for both Ukraine and Moldova has woken uh, Europe up from uh, quite a lengthy sleeping period, I would say, when it comes to enlargement. And it has given a bit of a more energy to the process, and it has made the European Union understand that, including countries uh, like Kosovo and the rest in the Western Balkans, but also Ukraine and Moldova, is the best way forward to ensure peace and stability in the entire European continent. So stay tuned for that. But first... Let's welcome Sarah Wheaton, Political's Chief Policy Correspondent and author of our EU Influence Newsletter. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Suzanne. And welcome back to Nick Vinegar, Political's Editor-at-Large. Hey there, Nick. Hi, Suzanne. Good to have you with us, guys. Nick, starting with you, it's very much back to school here this week. We had our own Political back to school party this week. Everyone's back, the commissioners, the ambassadors. I mean, what's on your agenda this autumn? Well, things are getting super busy. I think the first thing around the corner is the State of the Union speech on September 13th. And there you have all the countries lobbying to get their points into her speech. And then we have a series of council meetings, uh, I believe one at the start of October, at the end of October. And then we're going to get into the thick of it, so to speak. Um, We're going to start to talk about enlargement, which is kind of big theme of uh, back to school, and also the sort of corollary to that, which is internal reform, which is going to be the big sort of ugly topic at the family dinner table. And with that also budget, talking about the EU's long-term budget is going to be a big fight 
in coming weeks with uh, countries pushing to have a much larger budget and then the frugal countries saying, no, let's just uh, limit it to extra spending for Ukraine. Those are going to be some of the big arguments. And of course, migration and other themes like that are still up there. And as you say, there will be that speech by Ursula von der Leyen next week at the European Parliament. We will be down there in Strasbourg covering that. So put that in your diaries. But as you mentioned there, Nick, I actually, we were listening back to our uh, last podcast before the summer break where we asked you to predict some of the trends. And yeah, as you say there, issues like migration, that's something that's not going away too. Absolutely. I was just thinking, I'm sure I got all my predictions wrong, but that one is kind of an evergreen. I think it will be part of the debate because one, we haven't resolved the issue of this payment for Tunisia, which is now controversial because the money actually hasn't been paid out and the circumstances of how it's going to be done aren't clear. And the other one is the total amount that we're going to spend for migration, for giving to these peripheral countries, for keeping migrants at bay, is is going to be part of the budget discussion. And of course, there was plenty of drama this week um, here. We've already had some musical chairs at the commission. I mean, one of the big uh, debates is going to be who gets the head of the EIB, the European Investment Bank, Margaret Vestager, the competition chief, is vying for this position with Nadia Calvino, the Deputy Prime Minister of Spain, who we did interview actually in the podcast back in July. Fill us in on what's been happening there. Well, it's the top jobs race has gotten started much sooner than anyone had thought, really. Margaret Vestager has officially announced her leave from the commission as of Tuesday. And uh, Didier Reinders has taken over the competition portfolio on an interim basis. But now you've got two front runners for the EIB job, uh, Nadja Calvino, a Spanish minister on one hand, and, and Margaret Vestager on the other. Used to be not such an important position. Now it's a much more important position because there's quite a lot of money involved and people want this money to support big sectors like French, the nuclear sector. And so, of course, all this is uh, hyper-political and the arguments and the debates are going on right now. And I believe that the Renew Group in uh, European Parliament has thrown its weight behind Margaret Vestager. The question is the countries. Where do the countries fall? There has to be, I believe, a sort of unanimous vote, but that's still in contention. It's not clear where they're, where they're going. And we're going to have that meeting of finance ministers in Spain later next week. So we may get some white smoke there. And indeed, there may be some conversations about this on the fringes of the G20 summit this weekend in India. Nick, thanks for that. Sarah, turning to you, you as our policy reporter, you're plugged in to what lobbyists, what think tankers, to what the city is thinking of as we arrive back in Brussels for the start of the new term. What are you hearing? Well, I'm going to take the point that Nick started with, but kind of twist it in another direction, which is Commission President Ursula von der Leyen's State of the EU speech. And this is sort of arguably the kickoff of the campaign season. So people are going to be paying a lot of attention to her speech to see if she gives any hint of what her plans are. The big question is, it seems pretty likely that she wants to have another term as commission president. Does she engage with the lead candidate system, what we call the Spitzen candidate system? Or does she more kind of say, look, I'm already the commission president. I got that way without having been elected as the Spitzen candidate. Ultimately, the Macrons and the Schultzes of the world are the people who are in charge of deciding whether I keep my job. So does she do sort of a valedictory, unifying speech that highlights her green credentials? Or does she throw red meat to the her own political group, the European People's Party, who are also waiting to see if they're going to actually run her 
as a lead candidate. As we know, right before the break, uh, she was in a bit of a feud with Manfred Weber, the head of the European People's Party, over her climate agenda. And of course, that is one of the other topics we people will be watching closely to see, does climate get the prominence it has had during this commission's mandate? One of the other changes we've seen in the last few weeks is that Franz Timmermans, the kind of main guy when it came to the EU's Green Deal uh, has headed for the hills. He's running for election in the Netherlands. So we've had a reshuffle there. Is that something perhaps people are looking for in terms of the Commission's priorities over the next few months? To some extent, I think that people are taking Timmermans, Vestager, also the potential departure of the Finnish commissioner to run for office in that country as a sign that like, this commission's kind of done. Like new stuff, ambition, kind of done. And so that's also why lobbyists are really kind of turning their attention, turning their marketing towards preparing people for the next parliament and for the next commission. We're already seeing a lot of people essentially advertising. Uh, we're the ones with the best crystal ball. We can help you prepare. We have an idea of who the next commissioner is going to be, and we're going to start lobbying them already on their agenda. And then the other debate sort of within the policy set is how big of a change will we see in the European Parliament? So there's some polls right now that suggest that could be a big shift towards the right and the far right. Others are a little bit more blasé about it. And they're like, look, we've seen polls. You know, it's a long time in politics. We're not bracing for too big of a change in the status quo. So that's the other kind of political debate that we're watching. So something of a lame duck commission maybe for the next few months. Nick, um, just to finish up, I mean, Sarah mentioned there about the European Parliament elections. That is really going to be a focus now into next year. Those elections take place early next summer. I mean, you were reporting this week that some of the political groups have named the, the locations for their congresses, but not the dates. Yeah, it's the one Congress that everybody's watching, the EPP Congress. It's an electoral Congress. It's where they choose their lead candidate, their person to run for commission president. They say they're bound by rules that they have to put a candidate forward. And they've chosen the location, which is in in Bucharest in Romania, which is symbolic because that's a stronghold for the conservatives, but not the date. And what that tells you is that they're keeping their options open in terms of timing. So von der Leyen, if she decides to go, will want to go as close to the election as possible so they could run it. So what I've been told is that it's going to be sometime between winter and spring. So uh, that's a pretty a pretty big <laughs> window. And of course, let's not forget, there is that question of the NATO job that will fall vacant next year. But as always, Ursula von der Leyen is keeping her cards close to her chest. Well, thank you to Nick and Sarah for joining us on the podcast. Next up is our fascinating discussion with the president of Kosovo, Viosa Osmani. Stay with us. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. 
Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. As we discussed last week on the podcast and earlier with our panel, enlargement is shaping up to be one of the big debates in the EU over the coming months. Our guest this week is the president of a country hoping to join the EU, Viosa Osmani. She is the fifth president of Kosovo and the former speaker of Kosovo's assembly. In her capacity as a jurist, she helped to shape the country's constitution. For years, she has been a vocal supporter of Kosovo joining the EU. We talked about what's slowing down the enlargement process and then about recent tensions with the Serb majority area in the north of Kosovo, for which President Osmani primarily blames the president of neighbouring Serbia, Aleksandr Vucic, an assertion which Belgrade denies. Thank you so much for joining us on EU Confidential. Just to begin, maybe you speak to us a little bit about um, the importance of an EU accession path to Kosovo. For Kosovo, this is not just an institutional priority. It's first and foremost the will of the people of Kosovo. It's our strategic orientation, one which we have chosen decades ago. Practically, Kosovo right now is the most pro-European country that you can find on earth. Over 93% of our people are in favor of our EU integration path. But it's not just that. We believe that that's the only path that brings prosperity economic development, as well as sustainable peace and stability. And for a region that has gone through so much in the past, making sure that there is peace, which then opens up paths of prosperity, is is essential. So we have been working really hard with reforms that bring us closer to the European Union. As we speak, Kosovo is just an applicant for EU integration. So we've submitted our application last year. We're hoping for it to be reviewed very soon so that we can get candidate status and that opens the way for more discussions and negotiations with the EU and more reforms in our country, which we're absolutely ready to undertake. All in all, I believe that, of course, this is in our interest and in the interest of the region, but it's also in the strategic orientation and strategic interest of the EU itself to make sure that the Western Balkans as a region joins the EU because in that sense there will be more stability, there will be less destabilization and less space for malign influences to use some sort of a vacuum in European soil. Have you been disappointed by the pace of negotiations? I mean the EU really has been reluctant to expand further. I mean that's quite obvious over the last decade or so. Are the people of Kosovo and indeed the Western Balkans getting impatient? It's hard not to get impatient, especially when you're asked to complete very concrete tasks, and you do everything that you're asked to do, and then nothing happens. Just take the visa liberalization process, which, technically speaking, is separate from the integration path, but it's kind of part of that feeling that you're part of the European family. We completed all of the criteria, in fact, double the amount of criteria compared to any other country in the region five years before we actually got a decision. So for five years, we just waited there without anyone being able to give us a reason why this process was being delayed. So you can imagine if for something so basic, which is the freedom of movement, even after completing almost 100 criteria, 
they had not delivered until now. You can imagine for the most complex issues how long it might take. I mean, just looking at the example of North Macedonia and, and Albania and the rest, they really had to, despite of reforms, wait a lot the same with Montenegro. So just not to be misunderstood, I'm not advocating for a shortcut. I think countries need to carry out uh, the reforms that are necessary. They need to do their homework. But once we do and once we deliver, I think the EU should deliver as well and not allow for the enlargement fatigue to overcome a decision making, which, as I said, is strategic and it's in the interest of Europe whole free and at peace. Do you think the invasion, the full-scale invasion of Ukraine by Russia has been a game-changer in terms of enlargement? And are you worried that Ukraine and perhaps Moldova will get fast-tracked and that the countries that have been waiting in the wings, like yourselves, will be neglected somewhat? I don't see the issue of integration of Ukraine and Moldova as something that actually damages the integration path of the Western Balkans. So this is not like the places are limited so someone else is taking our place in the European Union. The open door policy of the European Union should continue for all European countries that aspire but also work based on EU values and carry out the reforms that are foreseen in EU documents and processes. So I think in fact that the um, candidate status for both Ukraine and Moldova has woken uh, Europe up from uh, quite a lengthy sleeping period, I would say, when it comes to enlargement. And it has given a a bit of a more energy to the process. And it has made the European Union understand that, including countries uh, like Kosovo and the rest in the Western Balkans, but also Ukraine and Moldova, is the best way forward to ensure peace and stability in the entire European continent. So I don't see it as damaging Of course, because of the war in Ukraine, there is much more attention on Ukraine, rightly so. But that doesn't mean that EU member states understand less the importance of uh, having the Western Balkans join. I think they understand better now how important it is to have the Western Balkans join. There's never a vacuum. Uh, Russia and other malign forces don't leave a vacuum. If the European Union and the Euro-Atlantic community don't uh, have their presence, uh, their values, their investment in the Western Balkans, someone else will make sure that they use that space. Of course, there's a specific situation when it comes to Kosovo. Five EU countries don't recognise Kosovo in addition to Serbia, which obviously does not recognise Kosovo, which it sees as a breakaway region. That obviously is a major issue for Kosovo as it looks to join the EU ultimately. I mean, do you see any way of getting around this or is that always going to be a problem for your country? There is certainly a a very easy way actually to get around this if there is only a will from these five non-recognizers. In fact, that formula had been produced by themselves back in 2015 when Kosovo achieved a stabilization and association agreement with the EU. In that sense, although five countries had not recognized Kosovo, the agreement between Kosovo and the EU simply added an article, Article 2 of the SAA, which says this does not prejudice the individual member states' position on the status of Kosovo. I think the same formula can be used for every other document that is produced when the candidate status is given to Kosovo. So not block the EU integration path, which we all know is going to take some time. It's not like it's going to happen uh, tomorrow that we're going to get membership in the EU. But at the same time, it takes into account the domestic policies uh, that these five member states have. But it was all EU27 unanimously deciding, including reconfirming in the past year, that all six Western Balkan members have an EU membership path. They say six. They don't say five. 
So when they say six, and when all EU27 agree that the six need a perspective for membership, that means Kosovo needs and deserves an EU integration a membership as well. Another issue, of course, a very, very current issue, is the recent flare-up of tensions in the north of Kosovo, which made international headlines. What is the latest situation there? Is Kosovo prepared to hold elections? And these were elections that were held in the north of Kosovo, and then violence ensued when the mayors that were elected went in to take their offices. And the issue was that the elections were effectively boycotted by the Serb majority who live in this area of Kosovo, but identify very much as Serbians. What is the position of your government now? Is it prepared to hold fresh elections? Yes, I've actually made it very clear back on the 1st of June during the European political community meeting that Kosovo is ready to hold new elections where the citizens of Kosovo of a Serbian nationality that live in the north of Kosovo can have the chance to participate in the elections and choose mayors of their own choosing. Now we've been ready to hold these elections for months now, but at the same time what we need is for the international community to make sure that they don't allow Vucic to once again pressure local Serbs not to use their constitutionally accepted and defended rights. But some people would say the Kosovo, that your government has not done enough to bring this community in, to make them feel that they have legitimate stake in this election. You're saying it's just all about pressure that's coming from Belgrade. What about your own responsibility as a government to this a minority that's living in your country? I would answer to those people with a couple of questions. Do they afford an offer in their own countries to a minority that comprises only 3 to 4% of the population a veto right over any constitutional change? Do they offer their minority of 3 to 4% a veto right over any law of vital interest, including laws on religion, laws on human rights, laws on education, laws on local elections, laws on protective zones, and so on and so forth? Three to four percent can boycott every important decision in our parliament. Three to four percent of the minority. But, but this is can not they, a this, this is, is not a regular. I mean, to say that another country with three to four percent. This is three to four percent of people who are part of see themselves as part of Serbia. This was a conflict region. It is a very complex. It's not just like having a minority living in X country. It is a different situation. Why it is a difference? Because the people in North Kosovo see themselves as Serbian, and there was a war there 20 years ago which involved this. Yes, so a war that had... It was not a war where two people were just killing each other. It was a genocidal war of the Milosevic regime against the people of Kosovo. That's what it was, a clear aggressor and a clear victim and a clear intervention by the international community to stop an ongoing genocide. So exactly... Because they belong to a minority that unfortunately are still, some of them, only a part of them, because the vast majority that lives in Kosovo South and East and West, they are very well integrated. And they know very well that Kosovo is an independent and sovereign country and is there to stay forever. But the rest who live in the North, some of them, in fact, not all of them in the North, are being manipulated by Serbian propaganda. Mm. And the rest are being forced through terrorization. So this is not because they want to boycott. Presumably some of them do, though. I mean, that's ascribing reasons. Well, you, you can always find yeah. a minority that is not happy with yeah. everything. But the point yeah. is, in order for them to feel comfortable, we have afforded the, and offered the most advanced human rights system, minority rights system that exists on European soil today. So my answer to you is that's exactly what we're doing. If you look at Kosovo's constitution, legislation, and all of the other compromises that we have made, 
they are all affording the minority communities the rights that don't exist in the rest of Europe. So we cannot be told you haven't given mm. anything. We have. The question is, why aren't those who live in the north, some of them, using these constitutionally protected rights? But what about Kazakhstan? There's been a lot of criticism of your government, particularly Prime Minister Kurti, and his very uh, strong rhetoric on this. We have seen Brussels, the EU and Washington, which has long been a supporter of Kosovo, being very, very critical over uh, your government's behaviour in the last few months. In particular, what is the situation regarding the establishment of the Association of Serb Majority Municipalities? That is something that Kosovo signed up to back in 2013. Not much progress has been made on this. What have you guys done in Pristina to deal with that? It's still outstanding. The 2013 agreement and the 2015 agreement, both of which dealt with the association of the Serb-majority municipalities, ended up in the Kosovo Constitutional Court, which found 23 violations of our constitution in those agreements that were achieved in Brussels. Now, what happened in the past couple of months, in fact, there was progress because a new agreement was achieved in Brussels and its annex, implementation annex in Ohrid, both of which provide for how the rights of Serbian community will be regulated in the future. But at the same time, it's an agreement that has created clear obligations for Serbia to not object to Kosovo's membership in any international organization. Yes, we are fully aware that we have undertaken obligations and we want to implement them. We have already proposed some provisions of how this can look like. We are being inspired by different models. But all in all, this needs to be finally the Kosovo model. Circling back to where we began, which is the whole question of enlargement, do you think the current kind of stalemate in North Kosovo, are you worried that that's going to derail your progress on enlargement? Obviously, I think we need to make sure that we do everything we can in full coordination with our allies and partners to prevent flaring up of tensions in the North. That doesn't help anyone. But at the same time, I have to be very honest with you. It's not like there was that much progress from the side of the EU even before <laughs> these tensions in, in the North. And when we talk to our European friends, I say, look, the more you delay delivering on your promises, the more you're giving reasons to those who want to create violence, who want to create tensions, who want to create crisis. And that was Kosovo's president, Viosa Osmani. And that's all we have for you on this episode of EU Confidential. Be sure to follow the podcast on your favourite app so you never miss an episode. Next week, we'll be heading to Strasbourg for the State of the European Union Address, the annual speech given by Commission President Ursula von der Leyen. Before we go, though, we want to briefly introduce you to our new senior audio producer who's joining the EU Confidential team, Dionysius Sturis. Hello, hi. It's Dionys for short. Uh, great to have you with us and uh, great for us to be building our team uh, here in Brussels. I'm super excited. I have been a fan of the EU Confidential for many, many years and I'm really happy to be joining you guys. Great to have you on board and I'm sure we're going to have some great episodes for you all in the coming months. That's it for now. See you next week. Music